got a lot to say about the world I occupy every day. But when I say what's on my mind, I find I piss people off. Hello, this is What the Folk, real talk and raw tunes for revolutionary times. I'm Joy Damiani. I'm Sarah Baranowskis. And on this episode, we're finishing up our two-part conversation on the TV show MASH and all of its interesting characters and ins and outs and ups and downs. No pun intended, except for the ones that are. But first, if you've been enjoying the podcast, we would so much love it and appreciate it if you would just drop us a five-star rating on iTunes or write us a review um, or, you know, just share us with your friends and Uh, family members, whether or not you like them. So now to kick us off, I have covered the MASH theme song, which has some really great lyrics that were written by Robert Altman's son, Michael Altman. uh, And the song is by Johnny Mandel. It's called Suicide is Painless. The 
first discussion of MASH, I feel like we covered a lot of all different kinds of random ground. So maybe we're, maybe it's time for a slightly more focused dive this time. Yeah, can get a little specific, a little more nerdy, if you will. Yeah, I mean, what is not to nerd out about? I personally, I feel like I'm I'm leaning into my middle-aged combat veteran status hard by, <laughs> um, <laughs> by watching this show and digesting it so much. Uh, so, you know, why not, why not dive all the way to the depths of Mashlandia? Mashlandia, yeah. This is m- the Millennials Meet Mash, part two. The unmashing! <laughs> the children of the mash. <laughs> I don't know. It's been a long hey, week. Can't e- I can't even make bad jokes. I feel like my brain is at that level this is okay so i'm gonna stop pouring tea while i talk yeah i can't make bad jokes anymore the uh i lost my train of thought oh yeah it's because i can't think anymore because my brain is just full of mash yeah (laughs) yeah you've been like still watching it i think um i had to go and review some early stuff to like to remind myself, because there were times that I actually fell asleep with it on, and Hulu doesn't stop playing things after, like, a few episodes like Netflix does. Yeah, they don't do the little, so, like, asking you if you're still watching it. Hulu just right. assumes your balls to the wall Huluing nonstop. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It assumes that you are there at the ready, like, you're strapped in, you've got your popcorn, you've got your, like, beverage feed going. You're, like, ready it's not Netflix and chill. It's Hulu and fucking commit. <laughs> exactly. Hulu and fuck around and find out. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it really was like in my subconscious. I would go to sleep dreaming um, in like snarky one-liners uh, every now and then. And it was great because then I would like write snarky songs in the morning. But the thing that really impressed me about it is that it stayed entertaining. Like when I went back, even the things that I like, I didn't remember all the early episodes that much. Yeah. You know, but it stayed entertaining, even the things I did remember. And I found new layers. Yeah, I'm looking forward to rewatching. Um, and I'll put together my list of personal fave episodes for the show notes. But um, speaking of fucking around and find out, how's this for a segue? Hawkeye fucks around a lot and finds out. So maybe this is a good time <laughs> to talk about um, some of the gender stuff with MASH that, um, you know, you have to acknowledge those things. Like, it's good to acknowledge, you know, the things that haven't aged well and... The blind spots. The blind spots, yeah. So we did want to talk about that a little bit, especially for maybe folks our age or younger that might be inspired to watch MASH. You know, it's good to just acknowledge some of these things, like, Mm -hmm. out the gate. I mean, I personally don't feel like Hawkeye was a sleazebag or a creep. I feel like he was someone who, even though he definitely fucked around, he, like, he did really love women and, like, respect them in a lot of ways even though he was kind of like a poon hound at the same time it wasn't like he was like a misogynist that being said the show is still very much focused at least especially in the early seasons on guys kind of chasing tail so um Mm -hmm. 
Oh, well, I was going to say, and it relied on certain tropes of, um, you know, male and female interaction that, like, you know, I'm I'm okay to a certain degree with, um, you know, overlooking some of the binary stuff a little bit because, like, that really was not in the mainstream at all, and it wouldn't have played at all. But, you know, there were there was just like a lot of um, the writing did not did not center any kind of non-male perspective at all. Um, it was just assumed that fans of the show would find, you know, non-consensual, you know, grabbing of women funny even, you know, and not have any kind of, you know, and have the, you know, the assumption that, I don't know, there was one joke made that was, you know, was part of the dialogue where somebody mentioned gynecologists and like, why would we need a gynecologist in the war? And I'm thinking immediately, like, you and the nurses are fucking all the time. Right, right. You should be. <laughs> what do these, do these nurses not need, like, you're, you're there for years. Like, do these nurses not ever need to get checked for the diseases that you're giving them from each other? Right. <laughs> like, how, come on, how, come on, dude. You know what they're for. And also, there was another, um, you know, just sort of this idea of, like, the military doesn't deal with a lot of births and pregnancies. I'm like, the one thing that soldiers are known for doing is getting people pregnant. Like, yeah. how is it that they're not delivering babies left and right? <laughs> I mean, they sort of touched on it a little bit with, like, um, Korean women being impregnated by American soldiers, which was supposed also, you know, an obvious comment on... Um, Vietnam, where a lot of Vietnamese women were impregnated by mm-hmm. American soldiers, and then their mm-hmm. children were kind of um, considered outcasts and didn't really belong, you know, mm-hmm. in Vietnamese society. And you know, the American GIs didn't want to take care of their 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 war children. Out, their war children. So yeah, yes. um, they did touch on that a little bit. But yeah, you're right. Like you know, like as the show goes on, you do sort of get more. Houlihan content where you do get a little bit of the female perspective but again it's not as central and it's all often about her relationships or that episode where she thinks she might be pregnant like it's although sometimes it is about her career I don't know the show is a mixed bag I feel like it gets better on shit as it goes on but certainly those early seasons are like you know as a woman watching them there's a few cringy moments for sure yeah, yeah. Well, and on a more subtle level too. There, I mean, when you notice, like, which of the female characters have names, and who do the do you know their names? Like Hawkeye regularly calls the woman that he's like about to fuck Lieutenant. Like, I'm sorry. Like, do you not know her first name, or did they just not consider her significant enough to give her one? And that, like, both of those. Potentially, like whether it's like the character's issue or the writer's issue that's like not supposed to come through the character um, necessarily or it's unintentional and kind of like, all right, you know, this is a like it's it's not just the a commentary on the on the way Korean women are being treated. It's an unintentional commentary on the way 
all women in the military are treated, which is, like, as fuck toys, essentially. Like, they're either, like, the trope in the military is you're either a bitch, a slut, or, um, or queer. Does that you know? also apply to soldiers, and did that also feel like something that was something you experienced when you were deployed? Well, that yeah, that was the soldier, like, for women soldiers. For women soldiers. That was for women soldiers. Like, it didn't apply to male soldiers. Male soldiers could be however they... Well, yeah, it's like society. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but that was... It, but So that was the, um, the archetype, right? So it was, like, bitch, slut, lesbian, and those were the three tropes that were portrayed in um, M.A.S.H., with the complication being that Major Houlihan was both a bitch and a slut, which was kind of awesome. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, I was right there for that. And then I was like, but wait a minute, this is all based in these like very male centric assumptions of like what it is that this woman character should want and how she should express her, um, her power you know, which she has a shitload of. Like, she's not only high-ranking, but she's also very good at her job, which is noted regularly. Again, I might would maybe need to double-check this, but I did notice that the series went on. There were more women in the credits, as in writing, directing, and I did feel like it'd be interesting to go back and rewatch it and see if that corresponds with Houlihan getting better storylines like the storyline where her father comes to visit and you really get to understand her as a person and why she's the way she is Mm -hmm. and that has nothing to do with her romantic relationships or her desire for a man it's all about family dynamics and her career like that was a really I thought an interesting episode that really gave you a lot of layers um to that character I was gonna agree with you and I also but I was also gonna say like it still is about her romantic relationships because her father is referenced so frequently That's in true. her relationship issues that it's like it's basically an extension of like like and now we're gonna talk about Major Houlihan's daddy issues, which is it's still framed through the male gaze, right? Like this is how we imagine her her father to be and her relationship with him, and it's not it's like it's touching the surface of what's going on but it's i don't know how how many women writers were involved if any um yeah or, i don't know if there was a woman writing in that episode you know i i can't but it was it was still i was like all right i see what they're kind of trying to do here but they're still like telling this story in the way that they think it is and um and every woman character's story is always centered around some kind of romantic issue. Um, like the one woman who was like clumsy and that was her thing and she couldn't find a man because she was so clumsy. I have to like, say that is my least mm. favorite episode of MASH. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, that's not credible at all. Like, I don't so know not. any men who would have a problem with this person and also, like, that's a really condescending thing. Like, oh, look at this, like, little girl who has these problems, but, like, these nice men. Like, the whole thing was, like, Hawkeye was, like, he drew a short straw to go on a date with her, which is, like, fucked up. And then he, like, convinced her that he actually wanted to go on a date with her, which is 
lying to her. Although the nurses and were in on that, too. Like, so they all collectively lied to this poor girl who was really just fine. She was like, okay, like, I'm just going to go home not having met anybody. And, like, that would have been okay. And so then he's all like, I'm going to um, make her believe that I'm into her for two weeks and no harm, no foul. But it's like, that's like a collective gaslighting operation. That is. That is. That that woman, like, if she, what if you had just left her alone and she maybe would have met somebody who did actually like her, you know? And I'm kind of, or like the the episode where he's, the, you know, with the the nurse who is, um, who's like, you never looked at me before. Oh, How Nurse Kelly looked at me. Yeah, exactly. She's only got one name, Kelly. <laughs> I think they give her a yeah, last name at some point. I think they give her a last name at some point because I think it was the same as the actress's name. Yeah, it just kind of bring up the question of, like, even if there were women behind the scenes, how much would a storyline that didn't kind of conform to certain expectations for writing at the time and storylines, like, would that even have gotten in? How many compromises would you have to make? Again, it's hard right. to, like, think about what was happening behind the scenes. Um I mean, I'm also, like, I tend to be a little more forgiving of things in context, which I'm not necessarily saying is, like, the right perspective to have, but um, I sometimes will be a little more, like, okay, well, this was written in the 70s and set in the 1950s. Gender roles in the 50s were pretty fucked up, so, you know. I'm, yeah. But it is still, like, looking back on it, in a show that does have a lot of really important things to say, it's very important to acknowledge the ways that it kind of you know, misses the boat on some things, for sure. Yeah, and the ways that it kind of ignores the context that it even is in, because when you look at, like, you know, how feminism was developing um, as a movement in the 70s and 80s, you know, it existed. These conversations were happening around equality and representation. And I think that... um, you know, it's just interesting to observe how, like, how long it took to, to enter the mainstream. The, the the fact that these shows are very male-centric, like, the conversation was happening. Because it was a progressive show in a lot of ways. And it also fell, you know, and it also fell short in these, like, very pronounced and kind of problematic ways. Because um, it doesn't really correctly represent the experience of women in the military obviously because there weren't as many women in the military back then but it doesn't represent the experience of women who were in the military then and that is an area that um like I'm not mad necessarily but like I I'm disappointed you know I would would have liked to see it happened, pushed the envelope, but it, again, it wouldn't have because its writers were mostly male and they just like wouldn't have yeah, come up with these perspectives. I mean, what seemed progressive at the time was probably just the fact that they were constantly acknowledging the nurses work hard, sometimes harder than the doctors. Like that was a line that would come up a lot. Um, or even having like Hulahan's character doing some more stuff as the series went on and... You know, things like that probably were, like, big wins at the time, but now they seem very, like, eh, you know? <laughs> it would have been nice. Now you're just like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Again, I tend to be a little more forgiving of stuff like that. Um, not necessarily because I don't care about it. That's not 
how do I want to put this? I always think it's interesting as someone who, you know, was an English major and read a lot of like early American literature and a lot of Mark Twain, especially like how you find the balance for things that are important to you culturally, but then taking them into the area you're in, like whether it was reading Huck Finn in like, you know, 2002 and doing like some big papers on it for my English class in college, like, like there aren't a hundred million people in the States who wrote papers on Huck Finn, but whatever, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or like even looking at MASH, like right now in 2021 with where I am right now and my, you know, understanding of feminism and gender, and even thinking of like a show set in the seventies, what feminism looked like back then. And it was really like white upper middle class to upper class women in Mm seventies feminism, like women's lib didn't do a good job of including women of color and working class women. So, like, what, how that might have affected right. narrative. Or trans women. Trans women, yeah. Or anything other than, yeah, your, um, your understood cisgendered woman. Right, like, my husband's rich enough to support us, but I want to create it for myself, kind of woman. The point being, it's always oh, interesting yeah. to kind of come to a state of balance, at least for me, that's my own process, which I'm not saying is the right process, to be like, what are the pieces I can take to make this piece of art that's relevant to like my life right now without giving it a pass for things but also keeping it you know a living breathing part of my life if that makes sense yeah we can definitely like incorporate the things that work while still acknowledging the things that don't and maybe never did like it's like it's not even a, a, a matter of like oh, it worked then, but it doesn't work now. It's like, well, actually, it didn't work then, but nobody was really saying anything at the point. Like, yeah. um, like there was one scene in, uh, in an episode where, oh, it was the episode where all of the, the women, you know, stonewalled the, the men because they were um, trying to get a date for the one nurse. And oh, it's it that episode again. I think. I think it was that one. <laughs> oh yeah, it was. They all, but, but then like they all are. Um, they all like come back into the room, and the Hawkeye says something about like, oh, it's women, but like, I can see that they're here, but like, what are they for? Yeah, and like, like you know, like literally everything else that you do to lift up these women characters is erased when you include a line like that that very clearly betrays that you see them as warm bodies and as a pair of hands to hand you your tools and um you know as somebody to sort of patronize and snuggle with and even even up till the end like there was very uh, little consent given with any of the characters by Major Houlihan at any point. <laughs> oh, with Major Houlihan specifically, yet, yeah, yeah. And yet they all, at some point, just sort of grabbed her and made out with her, and it was implied that she enjoyed it. Yeah, that's um, true. But yeah. but it was all just like a very demonstrative, like, this is a thing we can do, haha, and it's like... Like, well, cool, that's actually not okay. And when I think about the way that I've been treated by male veterans, especially older male veterans of that generation, not the Korea generation, obviously, but they are very patronizing toward women veterans and very tokenizing, and they do take great liberties with um, commenting on how we look 
and call like you know calling us like girl or cutie or things like that and i've had this from you know male veterans who know better yeah and um and you know they think that because they're of an older generation that this is something that they can get away with and it's absolutely not the case you know and i i don't know if any other women veterans are listening out there but it's like it really it like if any of them are out there feeling completely alone and completely bullied and it's it's a very like passive bullying because it's it's quote unquote kind it's friendly but it's not it's not friendly at all and it's made to seem like this is a form of affection on the show but like i can say like if i was a woman in that unit i would feel um like i was you know, I had no voice. Yeah. So I'm a big believer in that art doesn't necessarily need to tell you things are wrong, but it was very clear in MASH that it wasn't necessarily like those things were wrong, even if those were things that were common at the time and they maybe weren't necessarily saying it was right to treat women that way. They also really didn't get into so much how it was wrong. I mean, does that make sense? You know, like... Um, right, exactly. Well, because they needed it for plot. Right, they needed <laughs> it for plot. Um, and I do... When I was saying at the beginning, talking about, like, Hawkeye respecting women more, I think I more meant, like... Because I don't think he was, like, a horrible, creepy misogynist. I almost feel like he was more, like, that was what he was doing to fucking keep himself sane out there. That was one of the things he was doing. But they do... That quality in him kind of becomes almost like a liability as the series goes on and it becomes sad. Mm -hmm. Like it's sort of celebrated and funny and frat boyish at the beginning. And then by the end of the series, it's like almost like really sad and pathetic. Which I did appreciate that it, it took it there because that is what happens. You know, it's like you're, you're very, um, I mean, you're restricted to a place that you don't want to be in. And the people that you can connect with are the people who are around you. That's it. That's who you've got. And, um, you know, during my deployment, it wasn't like, you know, in the ones in the show, like the women, I think, rotated out much more frequently than the men did or were transferred more regularly. That wasn't the case in my unit. You know, we, we were all together for the most part for, um, you know, the whole deployment and then went back together as a unit. And, um, but, you know, and there were different people who would come in and out of the base. And so, yeah, it was basically whoever was around was who you could connect with. And you absolutely want human connection and you, like, need it. And, and you, as you progress further on your deployment, your ability to connect gets less and less because it's like you just have you kind of have to shut down emotional reality to process that you are in a war zone and like this is what you have to do and this is normal and so like your ability to connect sort of goes away also and it's kind of replaced by this by you have like a lot of primal urges you know but you don't have the ability to actually connect with anyone and I thought the show did a really excellent job of showing how all of those characters um, ended with these, like, very sad connections with each other. They, they weren't, like, celebratory connections. Yeah. 
Yeah, that last episode is a heartbreaker. Do we want to talk a lot about the last episode now? I had actually a thought when we were talking about the Houlihan and father episode about something else I wanted to, actually, that I really wanted to critique about the show, which was Freudian psychology in the show. <laughs> but Oh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, because I think, well, we... Yeah, we did want to talk about we t- we touched on on um, xenophobia and race issues in our last conversation. So um, maybe we can we can let that. Um, yeah, let's uh, let's talk about uh, let's talk about Freudian psychology and Sidney Friedman, the psychologist who's getting all of the soldiers better again to get back to war. Yeah, that was such an interesting difference we had with those characters. Although I think also for me, I could separate him as a character within the show, whereas like for you, it was a very visceral, like this is a real person I experienced and what they were doing was wrong. <laughs> so that was an interesting. Yeah. And in general, just like going back to like the Hands dad episode, like that's so like Freudian to like be like, OK, these relationships with their parents parents inform their like you know their romantic lives and I just I have a lot of critiques of Freudian psychology in general so I won't like belabor the point but and maybe that again maybe that was something that in the 70s that was what people thought of when they thought of psychology and mental health but that was something at least for me that bothered me a little bit in the show was like it was all about something that happened in your childhood something that happened in your past like things like that it really wasn't digging into it was all about very much like centered on these very Freudian ideas of like we're gonna solve this one traumatic traumatic experience you had and then you're good you know right yeah yeah it was um it was an interesting reflection to me on like yeah what what was the common understanding Mm -hmm. at the time because yeah that's that's what would make it into the right like they're not going to put a lot of you know advanced ideas necessarily into into that a sitcom but they yeah so it it really was it was an interesting reflection on how they um perceived the root of like the attraction between major Houlihan and um you know major burns and or any other male character which was very it's a very interesting contrast and also how like the how um, a reflection on how they believed soldiers related to war. Yeah, or like I'm all over the place. Sorry. I just thought of like the the absent mother with Hawkeye could explain, you know, sort of like explain his like pursuit of women. You know, like it's very very Freudian understanding of like human behavior, which again mm-hmm. some of that's not like. Freud's, like anybody, Freud has some great ideas and revolutionized the way we think about a lot of, like, the mind and human psychology and behaviors and sex, but, like, also things that I think with time we have shown it is infinitely more complex than, you know, A plus B equals C. Um, Right. So. There are a lot of players. Yeah. But, yeah, so Sidney Friedman, definitely a Freudian psychologist, and um, I know we haven't talked a lot about minor characters as much we mostly focused on Hawkeye and Houlihan, so I don't want to, you know, mm-hmm. shout out to Klinger, Radar, Colonel Potter, all the awesome minor characters in the show. We may <laughs> not get to cover you, but we love you all the same. Yeah. Radar, Grape Knee High Forever. Um, Cross-dressing corporals are my favorite. 
I wanted Klinger's wardrobe, like, so bad. He was wearing shit in layers until he, like, stopped that gag um, later in the yeah, show. I thought he carried it well. I really want that wardrobe. But that's me. Vintage fashion yeah. is, like, my weakness. It's all the first stoles. I was like, ah, you know. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, he definitely dressed classier than I ever have. I know. Yeah. He's a fashion icon. Um, but anyway, Meyer character that we had very different reactions to, um, and I think it's so interesting and indicative of the things we brought to the show and our experience in watching it was Sydney Freeman, who is the army psychologist, who every time, mm-hmm. you know, like there's an episode where Hawkeye's sleepwalking or a couple episodes where Hawkeye is like having some kind of issue culminating in the very famous final episode where he has to sit down with Sydney and work stuff out. And again, it's a very Freudian approach to psychology. But within the show, I liked the way the character was written. I liked how sort of like kind of this dry wit he had. Like my context of him was just within the reality of the show. But your reaction to him was totally different. And I thought that was so interesting. So why don't we talk about that? Because, yeah, it's so interesting. My reaction to him was like, oh, my God, this is every army psychologist or psychiatrist I've met. And um, I was I was very put off by him because I could see in him the, you know, the psychological tool of the military industrial complex. You know, the military industrial complex has like its supporters in subtle ways and in overt ways. And I feel like the the premise of a military psychologist is flawed because a psychologist is supposed to <clears throat> help you get mentally healthy. And it is an absolute detriment to your mental health to be in the military, always. Like, the military is terrible for your mental health and the idea that a soldier who is having an adverse reaction to the military needs personal mental health support rather than for the systemic attack that they're undergoing on a regular basis to be addressed is it's a super problematic premise to even begin with like if a soldier responds to war by freaking out, then a military psychologist's response is to figure out what's wrong with the soldier instead of figuring out that war traumatizes people. And this is a, this, this is a healthy soldier. Yeah. <laughs> the war is what is unhealthy, and no psychologist should agree to be employed by the military. Yeah, and I think that... To Mash's credit, I don't think they necessarily put a moral judgment on Sydney one way or the other. Like, his job was clearly tied to a deeply sick system that normalizes totally. war and killing people. Yeah, there was that one episode where, like, the guy, one of the soldiers gets mad at him because he sent him back. And he was mm-hmm. like, I think you might remember I that better. It. He's, like, yelling at him, at Sydney, one of the patients in the mash that comes in had been treated by Sydney before just so he could be sent back to the battlefield. And the guy basically flips out at him. And it's yeah. funny watching the time. I was kind of like, Oh, it's Sydney. He's just doing his job. And now like, I feel like if I went back and watched that later, I'd be like, yeah, that soldier was fucking right. Which again, mm-hmm. 
is why it's such a valuable experience to watch the show with you and for you to have that like lived experience to bring to it. It was really like, I think adds a whole other layer to my appreciation of it that, um, oh. yeah. I mean, I'm glad your yeah, traumas were something. Yeah, your traumas were something. It helped me like mash more. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I didn't make that yeah, really I horrible hate. joke. But <laughs> <laughs> no, my, I really agree though. It's a very, I and I'm glad that it like is helping you appreciate like the different layers because I feel like that was maybe. I, I'm not sure what the writers of this show were attempting to accomplish with that that exchange because they didn't seem to take the soldier's side. And, um, you know, when the soldier is yelling at the psychologist and saying, like, how dare you just get me back to the foxhole? And the psychologist has, or the psych, is he a psychiatrist? I think he's actually technically a psychiatrist. Psychiatrist. Yeah, but the the mental health professional in the room, it basically is just like, that's the breaks. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't address what he has said. Like, he doesn't seem to have any personal connection with what this kid is saying. And that is another aspect of mil- the military psychologist that, to me, was always really bothersome, that it never seemed to occur to these um, psychologists that, what they were doing was actually like antithetical to good mental health. And uh, that was, so like, I don't know if they intended to portray that or not, but that, that struck such a chord with me. I was like, oh my God, I am that soldier in that hospital bed who is like yelling at the the psychologist or psychiatrist, um, that it's their fault that I've been re-injured because they did not recognize the root of the injury in the first place. Yeah, I mean, this isn't even playing devil's advocate. This is just making a very obvious observation. Probably to do a job like that, like, and I think we talked about this the first episode, is you have, like, you can either just try to be, like, a Hawkeye and constantly be realizing that you're in an insane place or you can sort of just normalize the insanity and that's clearly what mm-hmm. someone like Sydney did is this is like this is just my job you know right and that is one of the things that's so disconcerting about uh the military in general is that the longer you're in um the more you see and feel people around you normalizing things that are not normal and should not be normal. And that, and just as much as the, you know, threat of loss of life or anything like that is, um, is just as damaging. (laughs) It's like just as destabilizing and traumatizing. Um, it, it drives you crazy because, you're just basically being gaslit all the time, every day. And the show does do a good job, especially through the character of Hawkeye, of showing that mental breakdown. Um, and I don't want to give too much away about the final episode, but... Um, right. Yeah, that's... But also just, like, the, there's little things that happen throughout the show where it sort of shows how, like, war kind of makes people into monsters. Like, all the characters seem to have a moment, even the best characters, where they're just not a good person, or they make decisions that seem ethically very fraught to put it mildly and you realize that it's 
sort of them being a product of the environment they're in. I'm trying not to give away too many plot points specifically, but yeah, there is um, one episode with Hawkeye in particular that I was like, damn, this was like, after I watched it, I was, maybe I'll just talk about it. And if we don't want to leave this part in, we can cut it out. Go for it. I feel like probably most people who are listening have seen it, but maybe not. Who knows? Do I remember what that episode's called? Preventative Medicine in Season 7. So there is an episode in the early seasons where Hawkeye and Trapper remove this one guy's appendix to sort of prevent him from going out in the war and fucking shit up. And they play that up for comedy. Then there's a later episode in Season 7 where there's a um, commander who... His force has, like, the highest kill percentages in the region, so basically, like, the largest percentage of his men are dying as opposed to other battalions, or... I don't know if I'm using any of these terms right, but... Um, yeah. So... Correct. Hawkeye and BJ, it's BJ at this point, decide to sort of, like, drug him and convince him he has, like, a stomach problem, and then Hawkeye wants to take out his appendix, and BJ, you know, because of his Hippocratic Oath, won't. And Hawkeye goes ahead and does it anyway. And the way they do it in that like episode is it's really dark and it really feels like Hawkeye almost like taking out his anger to like mutilate this guy's body and fucking take out. Granted, like you can live without your appendix, but still like fucking taking it out just to like try to prevent, um, you know, if in his mind he's preventing more death and you can kind of feel like he's justified in a way. But I don't know, the way the whole episode did that was really dark. And then at the end, you know, you hear the choppers come in again, and BJ's like, see, like, it's just going to keep coming no matter what you do. Like, Well, and I felt like the, the appendix really represented to me a sort of cutting out of his own moral um, compass, of his own, not of his own moral compass, but like a cutting out of his own, like, humanity in order to do something that he believed to be for the greater good. And it's exactly that kind of moral um, conflict that is what happens in war, you know, where you, you do feel justified in harming somebody to prevent the harm of other people. Um, And even though to do that, it's like, you know, it's removing a part of yourself that was healthy. Yeah. And I think that, again, speaks to the really great writing on the show. And one of the reasons the show is so influential and how it would combine just really intense dramatic moments, like gut-wrenching moments with incredibly goofy comedy. And um, I don't know if we want to swing into talking about narrative device shit. Yeah, let's. Let's jump into nerdy narrative device. So that's one thing that, for me, you know, as someone who's, like, I'm a big fan of prestige TV, like The Sopranos and shit like that, like, I was just so impressed that a half-an-hour show could have some of the richest writing I think I've seen in, like, a long time. All of the sort of, you know, gender and other sort of dated issues aside, the actual character development and some of the stories and some of those episodes were phenomenal and I think held up with writing that would be on place on HBO right now or something like that um there were so many yeah there were so many cool things they did with narrative there's my favorite episode is called point of view and it was like all shot from the perspective of soldiers so like the characters were talking to the camera the whole time as if 
that was an injured soldier that was experiencing going through the match unit. And I just, that was so cool and such a great insight to the characters. Um, There was episodes where they would be filmed for documentaries. So the whole episode would be like you were watching the documentary that the match unit was being featured in. Um, There was an episode that took place over the course of a year and they just showed them celebrating different holidays to show how long Mm -hmm. they had been deployed and I'm sure I'm forgetting a shitload of them. And if MASH nerds were listening to us, they would probably blow up the comment section. But I just thought that that was... You can see why that show has had such staying power is it really like broke out of the format of the half-hour sitcom in such a way that still feels... I mean, for me watching it, like pretty revolutionary, a lot of it. I was really mm-hmm. like blown away by that. Yeah, as a writer and a storyteller and a you know performer in general, it's always interesting to see people experiment with point of view which the show does all the time um and the the frequent you know uses of uh letters home or you know like a recording home like a sort of explanation of what's going on to the people back home um as like the frame for the episodes uh especially because letters and mail in general are such a huge um, piece of, you know, any deployment. And so, and and back then, you know, it wasn't like now. You, you just, like, post things on Facebook about, like, your day and the war. Like, that's that wasn't a thing that could happen then. Like, you actually had to be able to describe what was going on so people would know. <laughs> And, um, and so, yeah, I really appreciated that device. And, and it's also one of several devices that I feel like that show used that they wouldn't be able to use today because letters aren't really a thing anymore. I feel like my last deployment was like right before everyone got on Facebook, but we were still already emailing, you know, I sent letters so I would get mail. Did you have like, this is a random question. Did you have like a cyber cafe set up at the base or something or how did you mm-hmm. so you could just like send emails and log time on the computers there yeah the connections were really slow by the second time I deployed they had set up some camp wide wi-fi but it was really expensive and really slow oh, you had to pay for it? um <clears throat> yeah um everything that you had to pay for I mean unless oh. you like you could send an email if you had a work computer that you worked from but like other than that, yeah, like you pay for anything that isn't issued to you, but definitely Wi-Fi is not free and deployment. It's all contracted out. The military industrial complex profits greatly from soldiers. Just trying to fucking live their lives in some way that can keep them connected at home. That's so fucked up. Yeah, it was like $75 a month, I think, when I was um, when I was there, and it was very inconsistent. Like, you could not always connect. It was, like, if you were, you could sometimes connect to send emails. There was absolutely nothing, like, streaming happening. Right, (laughs) yeah. Um, I I think I got, like, five minutes of a Skype call in once. And, I mean, that's amazing. That would be magic to the people in, you know, in, in the Korean or Vietnam conflict or even the first Gulf War or Somalia, or all of these other places that the United States has decided to intervene so graciously with its bombs and troops. Mm. Yeah. Uh, 
So, yeah, it's, um, it would not have happened, like, you would not be able to have, like, the letter home device necessarily as effective now. So I really appreciated it. Or the stress of waiting for phone calls or trying to get connected, you know, going through operators and dealing with all that. It's definitely an interesting, in so many ways, not just for, like, you know, the the gender, race, some of the other issues we talked about, it's such an interesting snapshot of what life was like in the 50s. And granted, it was a TV show in the 70s, so I'm sure some of it was a little, you know, glossed over for the sake of a half-hour TV show, but it's still really interesting just to consider how um, less than 100 years later how fucking far we've come technologically and Mm -hmm. yet how not far we've come (laughs) humanity-wise. Right, like we're still invading and occupying nations the same way that we ever did. You know, the one major change is that we bomb people with drones instead of piloted planes. Um, that's kind of the major change. But we, like, and, and we're doing more things remotely. We're like, you know, why would we send thousands of soldiers in to occupy a place when we could just like strategically engineer a change of regime? Yeah, instead of work from home, it's war from home. WFH. <laughs> war from home. Ooh, Sarah. <laughs> don't let the Pentagon get a hold of that. <laughs> you know the DOD is going to call. That's going to be like the new hashtag for like Army Public Affairs. They're going to be like, war from home. If they want to hire <laughs> me as like a contractor and pay me like a million dollars, I will funnel it back into fucking good causes. <laughs> So that'll be your intention and then you'll drink the Kool-Aid. I know, right? After I buy some of Clinger's wardrobe, (laughs) I will funnel money into Mm -hmm. Google. No, I couldn't don't think I can live with myself. So I live, you know, right outside of Boulder, Colorado, and we had that really horrific shooting at the King Supers, just one of the grocery stores down there. And it's always kind of I don't know if frustrating is the right word, but I feel this like overwhelming sense of despair after a mass shooting when it feels like we're having the same conversations and people just want to look for real simple reasons and simple solutions for how we can stop these things from happening. And obviously there are solutions or at least things that maybe we could be doing to help, you know, mental health, access to guns, etc. But I rarely see people think about the fact that we have normalized violence and murder via our own government to the point where, like, you don't think that has a trickle-down effect. And watching a show like M.A.S.H. kind of shows you how, like, that is fucking part of our... That's in our blood and DNA. And you're surprised when it fucking happens here in nice little Boulder, Colorado. And I don't want to trivialize any of it. It's so horrible. I don't even really want to say much about it because I don't think I can... I just, like, what can you say? It's just fucking horrible. But that's something I think about a lot after these shootings is, like, what is the message that our government's sending us that they're so cheap with human life? And you think that that doesn't reflect. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That is the, the moral conflict that is... It's not overtly getting talked about on the show, and it never overtly gets talked about in the news, that... We have normalized the killing of bad guys and the hero worship of the good guys who do the killing. And that has 
um, become so ingrained a part of the U.S. culture that it is absolutely predictable that anybody who is struggling um, with any kind of issue in this nation would think that the answer is to kill somebody about it. It, it's how we roll and it's and you're right it's it's extremely ignored you know the same people who are calling for gun control are thanking me for my service and I'm like look cognitive dissonance is hard enough with people who think that war is patriotic but and and, and like are against gun control. <laughs> yeah, but when you're when you're looking at, at people who recognize systemic violence and recognize the tools of violence and they don't recognize that the reasons we have the tools of violence is because our nation is built and supported and defended by them and their way of life is included in that. Um, then it's like it does it may it makes me also feel kind of despairy. Yeah. <laughs> why are we not having the right conversation here? You know, why are we not having the right conversation about MASH is you know, and why are we not having the kind same right conversation about um, you know, where gun violence comes from? Yeah. And I think to kind of bring it full circle, I think that that's one thing I really appreciate about MASH and I hope people do keep this show alive is it doesn't look away from the shit we've done as a country and it doesn't go the good guy, bad guy narrative about war. It really shows how war makes everybody into a monster or at least incredibly emotionally and psychologically fucked up. Yep. And I mean, I can speak to that personally. I've had to do a lot of unfucking um, personally, since extracting myself from the military industrial complex. And I, I do think that, you know, because MASH was a comedy, it was it with a laugh track, it was able to get away with making these really, really, really important points um, that are important enough for me to yeah, <clears throat> still be able to um, engage with them even while there's some problematic shit going on in the other parts of the writing. And uh, it, it just drives home for me the, the need to keep these conversations uh, alive and keep them new, you know, not have the same conversation. Like, it's not just about controlling guns. It's about, you know taking an extremely militarized culture and like unfucking it, taking that apart, de dropping our narrative of, you know, military solutions that leads to mass shooting solutions. If nothing else, trying to find ways to stay sane in our own lives in the middle of this, which, um, exactly. Hopefully, well, I was going to say hopefully we'll involve inviting less nurses to the um, supply closet, but maybe that's a good thing. Maybe the nurses get to do the inviting next time. <laughs> that was a bad wrap-up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do feel like if, if, there's an, if, I, if there's ever a new iteration of MASH, I want to see it, you know, being told from 
from Major Houlihan's perspective. Yeah. Who, I just want to say, out of all the characters, um, out of all the actors that I've seen, um, more recent depictions of them, like, she's, I, she's not been, she's not worked as much as far as I've seen, and it's, it makes me sad because her character was, um, her character was one of the more complex female characters, and I, you know, I wish it, it would have led to her being in more, being more complex female characters and other things throughout her life. That's it, maybe you can think, we had talked about what we thought the characters would do after the show, and I had imagined nicer futures for them than you had, and yours are probably more realistic, but it's still like to think there's an alternative timeline where Hawkeye got back to the States met up with Timothy Leary and got into psychedelic therapy. Yeah, and helped start Veterans for Peace, you know? Like, let's let's say, let's say, you know, like, and essentially, like, let's, I, I do, I will say, like, a lot of Vietnam veterans came home from the war and they started fucking Veterans for Peace, you know? <laughs> like, like, that did happen, you know, just because it might not have happened in the show. It did happen in life, and I think that... You know, we can look at that show as as just being a show or we can look at it as being, you know, a real reflection of U.S. culture and um, and U.S. veteran experience. And both are true. Yeah. And inspiring, whether it's anti-war civilians like me or anti-war vets like you to know that, you know, somebody gave a shit about these things at one point in American culture. Yeah, a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people gave a shit, even if they didn't get it all the way. And that does feel comforting in a very strange yet dark way. Well, cheers to MASH. Cheers to MASH. I'm so glad that I went down that MASH hole. Yes, no regrets about the MASH hole. I might, I might MASH hole again. I will go spelunking in the mash hole. So it's still comforting to me, actually. Like I've realized, like now it's like my comfort show. Like I, if I have nothing else that I, if I just want something on in the background, now I'm like, oh, how about an episode of Mash? I'm like, that's why it was on. That's why it stayed on. Yeah, because people, because that's the feeling it gives. Yeah, it definitely does have that kind of comforting element to it, which is weird, considering everything we just talked about over two episodes. But um. Because it's validating. I don't feel like there's any elephants really left in the room necessarily at the end of the show other than the, like, what is probably going to happen at the end or, like, after. But, yeah, it says quiet parts loud consistently for 11 seasons. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it, too. On that note, thanks for listening. Yes, thanks so much for listening. And to take us out, here is a song called You're the Enemy by Emily Yates, written for Warrior Songs, a second album called If You Have to Ask, and it is a song that was requested to be written about military sexual trauma. So content warning for those of you who need that. Take care of yourselves. And for more information on the song and Warrior Songs as an organization, you can go to warriorsongs.org. Here's You're the Enemy. They say that you're my battle buddy 
They say that you're my friend That I'll never have to make you answer To the business end Of this weapon I was issued To give terrorists their due But what if the terrorist is you? fight to kill and to die but never thought that i'd be fighting someone on my side if we were taking fire i would trust you with my life if we're alone there's one hand on my knife even if i wore a skirt and not a uniform you'd have no right to treat me like you want me in this war they say we're on the same
Spoke is co-produced and co-hosted by Sarah Baranowskis and Joy Damiani. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at WhatTheFolkPod. You can also find us at WhatTheFolkPod.com. And guess what? Facebook as well, WhatTheFolkPod. If you don't remember it by now, um, you know, just drop a comment and we'll remind you at WhatTheFolkPod. And let us know what you think. Rate us. Review us. Um, tell us what your conservative cousin thinks of us. Tell us what your, you know, neoliberal banker daughter thinks of us. I don't know. Um, it's late. We've been all the way down a mash hole. So thanks for hanging out with us. Come back and join the fun again soon. 